0: Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall and I'm a partner at TrueSearch. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, we welcome Hal Bosher to the show. Hal is the board chairman of Wave Money in Myanmar, an advisor to the board of Yoma Bank and a board director of Delta Capital Myanmar, the country's largest private equity fund. Hal was the chief executive officer of Yoma Bank until September 2019, where he led Yoma Bank's transformation for seven years after moving to Yangon in 2012. While at Yoma Bank, Hal co-founded Wade Money, Myanmar's largest mobile money provider, which in the spring of 2020 welcomed Ant Financial into its shareholding in a deal worth 73.5 million US dollars. A Canadian national with a decade across various organizations within the World Bank. Hal joins me for a fascinating deep dive into the financial services ecosystem of Myanmar and the role that cars full of cash play in the Myanmar domestic remittance business. He also shares his insights on the importance of cultural sensitivity, listening, and the key attributes required to be successful in moving into a new market um, so hal thank you very much for coming on the show um, how How have you been keeping
1: it's my pleasure sam i can 't complain i'm i 'm here in Spain where I have been for well since leaving Myanmar so it's been about six months
0: oh well okay and, and how is Spain at the moment there's a lot in the news about it um, how, how have they been coping Germany but what, what area are you are you in
1: look it's been up and down I mean I'm in, uh, in Mallorca, so it's been pretty good Spain as a whole is well should we say volatile I, I I would say that obviously it's a bit challenging with tourism there's a shortage of tourism so that's not so good but uh, on the whole I really can't complain
0: Okay. And um, I guess as you've been on lockdown there for a while, have you got any new hobbies or have you learned anything interesting or has it just sort of been sort of hands to the pump with Wahook?
1: Yeah, it's been pretty busy. We've, we've had a lot going on in Myanmar. I'm, I've still got a number of things that I'm covering there. And so that's been keeping me busy. Uh, spending a lot of time with my, my three small children. So I've been doing a lot of uh, year four math, believe okay. it or not. My 12 times tables are coming along
0: yeah <laughs> excellent I, I i can't i can't remember the last time i, I had to I had to do something like that but my my kids are young but they're not they're not they're maybe they're counting to 10 as opposed to doing the, the 12 times table um so look great i i i I've, really wanted to cover um you've got a fascinating background um i see you've spent a lot of time across sort of both sort of developed and emerging markets you know places like hong kong mauritius indonesia and washington <laughs> not sure that counts as a developing market but um i guess what well, what well, so talk, talk to me a bit about your sort of background and what took you down such an intriguing path.
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I can't say I had a particular plan. I wanted to, to, to at a high level, I want to help, uh, and so I got into development. So after my undergraduate at McGill, I went to um, an international relations program at uh, Johns Hopkins called SAIS. So I spent two years there and I did a degree in Southeast Asian Studies. And um, after Sice ended up working for the World Bank, and so I spent, as you say, I spent about two and a half years in Mauritius between Madagascar and Mauritius, um, and then some time in East Java. I lived in the Majapahit Hotel in Surabaya for a year, believe it or not. Uh, if anybody from Indonesia is listening, they'll know that it's it's reputed to be
0: haunted. So that was an interesting experience. Okay. So,
1: <laughs> did you, did, so, you have uh, any did you have any
0: first hand Did you have any first experience of of that or? Uh...
1: No, but the hotel was cheap. Okay. It it made it affordable, actually. It was very nice. It was a mandarin Oriental hotel, but because it was known to be, or reputed to be haunted, it was affordable because people weren't staying. This was back in the the mid-2000s. So I wanted to be in development. That's really what I wanted to do. And so I worked for the World Bank for 10 years, and I had a mixed experience. I felt like I could do more outside. And so when we were in Hong Kong, um after i got married and i had my twins um i met melvin pun uh who, who convinced me to move to myanmar and then his father appointed me the ceo of yoma bank so that's a very abbreviated sort of journey but i guess that the, the thread of everything i wanted to do was that i wanted to to be in development and i wanted to be in developing and sort of frontier markets
0: sure and what was it that brought that sort of brought you towards southeast asia um, obviously, doing a doing a study in Southeast Asia studies—that's um, obviously sort of a sign of intent, as it were. What was it about the region that that, that fascinated you?
1: Well, in truth, it was a bit random. Uh, you know, when you're 22, you, you you don't really know. I my uncle had been Canadian ambassador to Indonesia, uh, and I rang him up and asked him a few things, and um, I sort of felt at the time, and this was the late 90s, I did my master's in 99 to 2001, that, that, that you know, the future was Asian. And I think in truth, I, I probably thought maybe it was more Chinese than, than, than Asian, but, but Chinese language seemed a bit daunting for me. And I felt yeah. I was very sort of unfamiliar. So I ended up uh, doing Southeast Asian studies and, and, and then doing Bahasa, you know, which is a language yeah. which you can learn in a, in a relatively short period of time. So yeah. it was more by chance than anything else.
0: Okay, interesting. And I guess sort of um, what were your first um, interactions with, with Myanmar and um, why was it, you know, what, what, took you, what took you there?
1: Yeah, interesting. So actually when I was living in East Java, I had a colleague um, and we took two weeks and we, we flew up in 2004, I want to say, to Yangon uh, on holiday. And we spent two weeks and completely misjudged with the challenges and we had a quite an adventurous time, um, going around Myanmar. Um, and so that was my first visit and I found it, um, charming. I mean, it was sort of, I hate to make the comparison, but it was a little bit like Cuba in the sense that it was, it was really left in another age. Yeah. And I felt like this was the sort of place where, you know, you can really make a difference. And so then, as I mentioned in 2012, mid 2012, Melvin Punt, who had been at Goldman Sachs for a long time, and as many people know, his father, Serge Punt, uh, you know, was, the, was the founder of, many of, the, of, of Yoma Bank and, and many mm-hmm. of the other businesses. So he had made the decision to leave Goldman and, and join his father. And he and I were speaking and I left the World Bank at the same time. So it was, in truth, it was much more, I knew a little bit about Myanmar, but it was more about the opportunity uh, to join them as a, as a group and as a family than
0: yeah. sort of a core focus to get to Burma. Just, just to sort of go, go back to the World Bank um, sort of thing, because obviously, that, I mean, you spent a long time there. What was it that you sort of felt you, you couldn't achieve there? What was it about that that was, was sort of challenging to, to, to get things done?
1: Look, I, so I worked. I had worked for IFC, which people are aware of, and I also worked for a place called MIGA, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, which is a small part of the World Bank that does political risk insurance. And I have okay. to say, I enjoyed the heck out of my job. I was young, I wanted to travel, and I did travel, and I had a blast. I went to over 44 African countries, some of them more oh. frontier markets, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Equatorial Guinea, <laughs> and I really had a wonderful time. Uh, Nevertheless, it's a large institution, right? I mean, there's nothing else to be said. It it, it has a lot of rules uh, and procedures. And I felt like, uh, you know, with the right opportunity, I -hmm. I I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. And the World Bank has its pros and cons. Again, if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it. But for me, at my age, and I was in my early 30s, I looked up and I thought, gosh, this is going to be a 20 25 year slog and it'll it's sort of a golden cage I was yeah. you know I was very comfortable I had a yeah. I had a staff contract it's one of those you know never- ending contracts and I could have been there for a very long time and I was lucky to be in Hong Kong so I was out yeah. in the field as they call it but um, you know I wanted a bit more of an adventure
0: okay so it's sort of buried in bureaucracy kind of as many large sort of NGO type type establishments are okay interesting and so um. You, you, you took the role with Yoma Bank. Um, when you arrived, what was the um, what was the main objective? What did you have a Was there a plan? Was there like, okay, this is what we want to do, or was it help us find out what we want to do? Or I guess sort of what 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 did you what did you land and discover?
1: Yeah, listen. So it's interesting. So to, to be clear, I wasn't hired to run Yoma Bank. Actually, okay,
0: okay. I okay, was so. hired to
1: help found. No, no. it's... It's fine, it's a bit of a surprising journey. I, I was hired to found what is now Delta Capital Partners, okay. uh, of which I am a director. So okay. I, was, I was hired to do private equity and I got there and I think after a few months, Serge looked at it and thought, gosh, I can get more out of this chap. This fund is gonna take some time to build, raise money. Um, and he had a more pressing need. So in many ways, I was lucky. The license, okay. Yoma Bank's history is, is an interesting one. It was founded in 1993. And um, Myanmar had its own financial crisis in 2003. Mm -hmm. And for 10 years, Yoma Bank had a a restricted license. We weren't allowed to take deposits or make loans, which is rather difficult for a bank. (laughs) And we pivoted to remittances. So we did effectively domestic cash logistics, nothing international, only domestic Mm -hmm. cash logistics for 10 years. The staff Mm -hmm. took a 50% salary cut. And it was a very very hard time, so the license had been returned to the bank, uh, and that in itself is a story. But the license had been returned returned to the bank in August of two thousand twelve, and I arrived in country, gosh, maybe a month later. And so I think in many ways the chairman was looking for, you know, a safe pair of hands to to, to sort of manage the bank in its early days, he will say he knew all along that you know, this was going to work out and, and, and we would have a great success together, which we, had, which we did do. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I struggled to see how he, could have, how he could have had that clarity of vision, but he took a huge risk on me. And I'm grateful because of course, I was not a banker. I had worked for the World Bank, but you know, not a retail banker. And of course, yeah. the bank, Yoma Bank, had no balance sheet. So for 10 years, it had been doing nothing but remittances. It had no balance sheet. And so we struggled to make payroll for the first you know, few months and, and maybe almost yeah. a year. So it was about rebuilding the bank from, from, ground, from ground up. And so when you, if you ask the question, did we have a vision or a plan? The answer is no. Uh, very quickly, I engaged with my colleagues, my ex-colleagues from IFC, and, and they you know, came in and they've been a, a partner of ours for, the, for a long time now. Um, but that was that was only after about six to nine months that we got that together, so it was it was very much feeling our way
0: oh okay so when you when you sort of uh, came into the, the the picture on this, it was just a remittance business did it have any any branches or any sort of infrastructure or sort of any anything like that
1: well we did so we had if memory serves we had thirty four branches yes. we had no core banking system, so what that meant was if you go into a branch you're not really banking with the bank you're banking with the branch because you yeah. have to remit money from one branch to another
0: yeah. uh,
1: and even to this day there's no interbank uh well there's a nascent interbank system in Myanmar so okay. um it was very basic we had a lot of money counting machines um and a, a, i think we had a roughly thousand staff at the time
0: and so then building out you i guess you um probably what sort of mission one was to to try and work out what sort of infrastructure you needed to support and how you, you would, you know, build the foundation to then grow the, grow the bank on. Talk talk us a bit through sort of that, that journey.
1: Well, uh, to be frank, it wasn't even about that. <laughs> the,
0: the, okay. <laughs> the mission
1: was To make some money I yeah, okay. not made money, you know, it was to make money to pay the salaries. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was touch and go. You can imagine a remittance business. It's a flow business. And, uh, we were wise to pivot because it, as it turned out two or three years later, there was a bit of a, shall we say, a pricing war in remittances, which really knocked the bottom out of that business. At the time, you, you know, you had a, a reasonable margin, but it was clear that there was a, you know, it was a sunset industry. So yeah. the very first thing was to just get the thing going again.
0: I'm sorry, what was that thing that you guys, what was that thing you guys moved to? What was, what was the sort of first, the first plan to make money?
1: uh well we kept our remittance business and we started to lend so we we had to build a credit business from from scratch I mean, there was no there was no capability within the bank and mm. the methodology and that's where again where we worked very closely with the ifc to sort of put all those mechanics together we mm. also needed in truth to hire um no one spoke english or very little english when i joined the bank you can imagine right mm. I'm, I think it's probably clear. I, I still don't speak Burmese, and, yeah. and you know, so a thousand people. I'm the, you know, the CEO, as it were, and uh, you know, no, nobody speaks English. So we started to hire some some what they call repads. so Burmese yeah. that had been overseas that wanted to come back. This was the heyday. You know, a lot of people wanted to come back to help the country, and so we got some very yeah. good good people to come in and help. And so it was about really getting more people in, building a, a balance sheet, and just a slow, steady. Grind, and it took us—you yeah. know—it took us a good three, four years.
0: At what point did you guys consider the pivoting onto wave money and looking at um, sort of fintech type aspects to to to, to the business? And I, I guess what what was the driver for that?
1: Yeah, really great question. I, again, I, I hate to disappoint, but there was no strategic. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll tell you, we were we were in our little office, and there was a chap from IFC, uh, Ivan, and he. He said, you should be going to this telco conference. And it was the boom time for telcos because they had just issued two new licenses, which were awarded to Oridu and Telenor. Uh, and there was a telco conference. And I said, why would I go to a, tel- a telco conference? It doesn't make any sense. And he started to talk about mobile money. And of course, I knew a little bit about M-Pesa. And so I wandered across to, uh, I think the Chatrium Hotel and ran into the Telenor team. Immediately said, well, you must be partnering with Oradu because in another part of our group conglomerate, we had a tower business who indeed had signed a, you know, a contract with with the, with Ordu. And um, I quickly, you know, clarified to them that we didn't have this uh, engagement with, uh, with Ordu and we were very open-minded. And so we ended up working with Telenor more by chance than by design. Um, And so we founded the business very much in an opportunistic fashion
0: how was that journey because i can imagine that you know I, I don't know what the infrastructure was like in in myanmar at that time but um perhaps challenging for, for for mobile money um how how was the journey what what were the challenges that you saw sort of um during that time
1: yeah i mean look what i will say is this and maybe i, I want to answer your question immediately but w- w- you know one of the one of the questions that i've had from people and i think it's important to clarify particularly in a market like myanmar sort of why did why did Telenor choose you right so why, at the time we were the number 16 bank in the country, you know, it, it, there was no strong logic for it. And what I will say is a, a theme of the bank um, and, and everything that, at least that I've done in, in, in Myanmar has been around good governance. And, and what the Norwegians wanted was to find a local partner which they could have confidence in and had the same level of governance and aspirations that they had. And so when I started to talk to Telenor, they were comforted by the fact that we were partnered with IFC. Obviously, the puns had a reputation in the market for good governance anyway. And this is how we ended up um, sort of the, the germs of the, or the, the foundation was, was laid that way. Uh, and when you talk about the business, I mean, to be frank, one of the one of the smartest things I did was hire Brad Jones. So Brad mm-hmm. is, remains the CEO of, 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 of Wave and he had founded Wing in Cambodia. So mm-hmm. he knew, you know, he knew, uh, how this business should work and how it should be put together. Mm-hmm. And so he came in in early, I want to say early 14, early 2014, mm-hmm. and built the business from scratch. It took a long time for us to get the license. I and mean, you want to talk about a challenge. We were operating <laughs> on a completely new license framework called the Mobile Financial Services License, which had never been issued. And it took the Central Bank of Myanmar more than a year to issue that license. And during that year, we burned you know, a lot of money. Yeah. The other disappointing thing, which I you know always reflect on, is that when we founded the partnership, Yoma Bank had 49% of the business and uh, Telenor had 51. And the regulator uh, required us to sell down our stake to um, to five percent. So Yoma Bank today uh, has five percent of of, huh. of Wave, and our, of course our sister organization Yoma Strategic Holdings. Holds, holds the remainder, and there have been some changes in the shareholding over the years. But um, initially, shall we say that the link between Yoma Bank and Wave was much stronger. I, yeah. I've stayed on the board all these years, and of course now I'm now the chairman, but in terms yeah. of the linkages between the two businesses from a cross-shareholding standpoint are, are weaker than they originally were.
0: Okay. And uh, I guess, does that, does that sort of provide challenges for, for, for the organization? Sort of what, what, what impact does that have on, on, on the business?
1: Well, it was interesting. I mean, you, you, you'll remember that, as I said, what Bank used to do was remittances. Yeah, And wave okay. money does remittances. <laughs> and I will say it did create challenges because we were really cannibalizing our own business. Yeah. We, 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 if you like, ate ourselves. And I have to be, you know, it worried a lot of our staff because they didn't see the future. They had been doing remittances for 10 years. And this is this was banking as far as they were concerned. And so there was quite a lot of internal resistance within, within Yoma Bank to, to really driving this business. And they also thought it was it was too expensive and it wasn't going to work. And it took many years to convince people to come around. But one of the smartest things we did was create Wave outside, if you like, outside of both Telenor and, and Yoma Bank. And yeah. it gave the business the independence it needed to have to be successful.
0: What are some of the, the leadership challenges you faced as uh you know somebody that sort of grew this organization that's been involved in these different things like what what were some of the 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 challenges you faced from a leadership perspective to you know get people on side and to to find the right people and just just generally grow yeah can you can you sort of share some insights onto your leadership journey there
1: well there was a lot of learning i mean as we as we touched on early er, earlier you know i i hadn't led many people (laughs) before i was even the role i was uh I was um, 35 oh. when, when I made the CEO. So I didn't have a lot of experience. I learned some things quite quickly. I mean, my chairman really guided me a lot. I, I will say that okay. and he gave okay. me you know, lots of solid advice. One of the things that I think was one of my key strengths was I didn't know. Uh, and, and more importantly, that in itself is not an advantage, but I knew I didn't know. And my ego wasn't okay. tied up. Enough. So mm-hmm. I listened, right? Yeah. So I didn't, I, I didn't have a 20 year history in banking, right? I didn't think I had the answer, and I think one of the one of the key strengths was that it forced me to listen. So I would listen to my Myanmar colleagues, who yeah. had their vision of how things should be, and then I would listen to you know more sophisticated international advisors like the IOC and others who would tell yeah. me how it, it should be. So the Burmese would tell me how it could be, and the yeah. foreigners would tell me how it should be, and then we'd find yeah. some kind of compromise. But yeah. I think that approach, uh, you know, the listening approach, yeah. makes everyone feel like they're making a contribution and it builds unity and teamwork. And I think mm-hmm. as long as people understand that their, their point of view is considered, then if compromises have to be made and maybe they don't get everything they want, uh, they're okay with that. And that was one of the biggest, that was one of the biggest uh, strengths that I had during those years was that I really didn't know and yeah. it, you know, we had all this best practice from IFC, which is wonderful, but best yeah. practice is, is in itself hard to, 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 to deliver. So, yeah. so we would then sort of navigate our way through it. So, I mean, the challenge is, let, let's be frank, right? Language, mm. you know, it's very, very difficult. I'm, you know, I was a 35 year old, you know, Canadian. And here we had, you know, a thousand plus Myanmar who had many of them have been on the job in the bank for some as, as long as 20 years, right? Um, or at the time 18 19 years so you have to earn their respect you have to get out on the ground and and show and the other thing I think you have to do is commit I did a I did a a newspaper interview earlier in my in my time gosh maybe only six months in and they asked how long am I going to be in Myanmar and I said 10 years and I got home and my wife you know gave me a very long hard but (laughs) <laughs> the, the uh you know the truth of the matter is is you have to commit right because otherwise yeah. people will say look we're here forever we can just yeah. outlast you so yeah. my my son was born in myanmar uh my girls my twin girls moved there when they were you know less than a year old and yeah. so we really as a family committed to the country and to getting behind it and i think this really helped us really
0: yeah yeah interesting um and look i would like to come on to Sort of uh, really getting into that setting up in a new col- country culture sort of experience in, in, in a moment, I just um, could you perhaps give us a, a a view on the the market of, of Myanmar or the uh, you know the country of Myanmar and talk a bit about um, the financial services um, as as it stands and you know what challenges it faces and, and what you see the future being for for Myanmar
1: Yeah. Look, what I what I found quite interesting about the, the economy as a whole is that for a long time, it was designed to serve the needs of quite a small elite. Okay. It's as if you would build an economy thinking only of the people that you knew. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about sort of cronyism and, and the, the mm. economy, I don't think that's anything new. But I think what 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 is more what was more fascinating for me is that it wasn't it's not sort of it's not sort of what's the word um, systemic the structures that are built are not built for scale they're built as if you know there're gonna be only a few hundred people going through this process when in truth you know they they're 55 million people mm. and so building a mass one of the things that has been missing in, in, in Myanmar for for a long time and it's been it's being addressed over the last five years is mass market businesses, businesses that are built to serve the needs of everyone, not the needs of a middle-class or only the people that can afford it at the top end of the pyramid. So if I look to the economy, I think it's, you know, it's always been highly regulated, but what that has allowed people to do is sort of trade on their license. So if you have a license, it gives you the authorization to, you you know, it's used as a competitive advantage. It's not like in the West where it's a way of certifying and making sure people do things to a standard. And -hmm. so that would be true in the banking and the financial services sector. You know, there are are 20 plus local Myanmar banks and they issue a few more licenses every year. I mean, in truth, Myanmar doesn't need more banks. It needs better banks, right? It needs banks that can scale and serve the needs of all the people. It doesn't need, you know, I don't know, another small segment that is addressed by a particular bank because they feel like they're underserved yeah. um and i would say that's across industries some again yeah. some some are scaling and yeah. of course one of the big changes and i referred to telcos earlier is the 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 impact that the telcos have made on myanmar since you know 14 2014 when they launched 1450. Okay. The impact is incredible and has revolutionized the entire economy and made things possible that were simply not possible before Mm -hmm. just because of the logistical challenges.
0: Okay. And, and is that because they've gone in and basically helped set up an infrastructure that covers a lot of the country and it, it takes it some takes, um, access to, to things like the internet and access to, you know, to, uh, to mobile services outside of those, I, I would not want to call them elitist bubbles, but those outside of those sort of core centers that it's were- becoming urban, I mean, let's
1: be, yeah. let's be frank, right? The first cell phone I bought, well, not even the cell phone, the SIM card, the first SIM card I bought my wife back in, what, two, early 2013 cost me 250 bucks. <laughs> right who can afford a 250 sim card i mean that's not yeah. that that's and, and it didn't really work very well so so yeah. so uh, the short answer is yes but what's interesting about what the telcos did is that it was you know this was 3g technology i mean i think Ordu launched with 3g so you talk about digital natives these are many of these people had never picked up a landline before yeah. so i mean they literally were digital natives i think they thought we had cell phones forever right and then they have access to cheap Chinese smartphones that are, you know, yeah. 20, they're not a, a your iPhone, but they're $20, $30, and you can stream video on it. And so the, what, what I think what the, the, the improved communication environment did was create both demand, you know, both supply and demand, because people can now see what they were what they were missing, right? And and, and I think this created started to create a more sort of free market economy. And, okay. and 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 actually, really catalysed a, a lot of inclusion.
0: And how did the sort of um, the legacy players in the market react to this? Was it was it a sort of sign of great opportunity, or did they see it as a challenge? What you know, how, what was the d- dynamic between the, the new versus the old there?
1: And do you mean are you referring to banks or more in general?
0: I, I, I think sort of more in, in general. Um, but I mean, we can we can talk about both banks and in general. But I, I'm interested to to sort of hear how you I mean, know you got. I, the, the,
1: I mean, the narrative, I mean, look, to, to give the, 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 the legacy mobile operator, MPT credit, they partnered with the Japanese and they've got a very strong business. I think they're the number one telco in the country today, mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong. So, so they pivoted and, and, and recognized that perhaps they didn't have all the solutions. And so they found, uh, you know, an international partner and they, and they worked with them. So I think sometimes these players can be quite agile when they need to be. You know, other industries which are more, shall we say, license dependent. Yeah. You know, some some really struggled um, Mm. and some don't exist anymore. I mean, in the banking sector, um, I'll never forget. I won't name the bank, but I won't. I remember back in 2014, one one owner of a bank said he had decided not to get a core banking system and he was going to stay manual. (laughs) okay so we had ledgers where you would write the person's name in and the debit and the credit and then and 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 that 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 was a strategic choice that that person had made and that took my breath away it showed that you know that's not really an alternative you can choose one system or another or you can choose you're going to wait to implement or you're going to do something but the idea that you're just going to suddenly somehow freeze yourself shows that you don't Mm -hmm. really see the you know the, the mm. rationale behind having this technology. It's not just a pretty, not just a pretty thing. It's 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 sure. very important. Is it yeah,
0: and how have the regulators sort of re- reacted or the central bank because obviously if you look at uh, you know Singapore probably isn't a good a good parallel but if you look at places like Indonesia and some of the other uh, sort of emerging economies in in Southeast Asia we've seen um, the regulators um, modernize quite quickly and they're looking at regulatory sandboxes they're in constant conversations with the with the, the you know the fintech businesses and the banks how, how, do, uh, what's the sort of level of sophistication of the, the Myanmar regulators um, and how, how have they sort of coped with with keeping up with the, um, the advances?
1: Look, I think they're learning. And I think, um, I, what I would say is the regulator tends to be reactive. So they're not you know, perhaps as proactive as some people in the industry would, would like them to be. Nevertheless, I think that given the history of the financial markets in Myanmar, they're more focused on not getting it wrong Mm-hmm. Then they are focused on getting it right.
0: Okay. Okay. So there's some sort of um, nervous retic- reticence to make sort of sort of big sweeping decisions or, or okay. Okay. Right. And- they're better
1: off. You, you know, they I think they believe that they won't be they won't be criticized necessarily for being conservative and cautious. But they feel like it, you know if they take if they put a foot wrong and there is a and the system is quite fragile that if they do get it wrong they, there could be cataclysmic consequences. And in that respect, they're not entirely wrong
0: and I, I saw a very interesting video of of yours um i think it was a tedx talk uh, where you um we talked a bit about um the sort of i guess microfinance in 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 the, the the Myanmar market um it's that's that's a topic that's incredibly hot right now um you know everybody everybody that we we speak to seems to be sort of moving into loans or or also sort of something in in that sort of space um how has that aspect of the the economy um, sort of behaved and has it, has it had much of an impact on, on the everyday sort of consumer and, and I guess what's the, the, the future in, in, that, in that space?
1: Well I, I for one think that uh, Myanmar's microfinance industry is thriving. It, it is led by you know I would say the top 10 MFIs are, are, are very strong and they have very good governance. Many of them have DFIs so sort of you know donor-led uh, shareholders uh, okay. and international. So I think the quality of the governance and the management teams are very high. I think the challenge is um, scale. So because of some rather shall we say, ext- eccentric parts of their licensing, not all of the MFIs can take deposits. Okay. So one of the programs we put into place at Yoma Bank in fact was a lending product to lend to MFIs to mm-hmm. allow them to have balance sheet and to scale. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, despite all of these programs, you know, I would estimate the whole industry is maybe half a billion US, yeah. which to give you a sense of scale is, is maybe 1 or 1 one thirtieth 1 yeah. 30th of the banking sector. So it's still yeah. very, very small. Nevertheless, I think MFIs have really shown the way for some yeah. banks. But again, banks really need to pull out their socks to be able to get down into that level of the economy where, in truth, yeah. most of the people are. I mean, yeah. most of the people are whether you want to call it MFIs or consumer finance. I, I, Any way you slice it, you 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 won't you can't build a sustainable build business or bank in Myanmar simply relying on corporates.
0: I mean, that, that sounds like a really interesting initiative from from Myanmar you know, Bank to lend to the the lenders. I know that sort of cost of cost of lending for these guys is really important, and I uh, I don't know if there's still sort of um, restrictions on currency coming into to Myanmar, but I can imagine that was could be a real bottleneck on on how their their businesses sort of grow. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you
1: refer to, 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 to capped rates, fixed rates. I mean, that's one of the most eccentric parts of Myanmar. Uh, MFI rates for a long time were capped at 30%. And now I believe they're capped at 28 As a bank, we for a long time were capped at 13%. And rates are coming down, depending on whether they're secured or unsecured loans. Yeah. But the fact that you can't risk price mm. creates real challenges. And I think there's a misunderstanding of you know, the, the, the impact of having fixed rates. It, it doesn't mean that you'll just lend to somebody at a cheaper yeah. rate. It means that you just won't lend to them at all. Okay. If you can't risk price and the risk doesn't match the credit, you know, the, the yeah. cost, then you just don't lend to them at all. And I think yeah. until there's that understanding, you're going to have a whole part of the community that's disenfranchised. And that's what I addressed in my TED Talk. That, yeah. you know, there are large numbers of, of Burmese paying north of 100% interest a year, yeah. multiple yeah. 100% because banks can't lend to them at 40%. So they have to go and borrow it, you know, 250% from, from you know, a, a more informal channel. So there's a lot of sort of reconciliation that has to happen there.
0: What do you see as the sort of the near, the near to midterm future for, for FinTech in, in, in Myanmar? What, 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 what does the future look like?
1: Well, look, you know, me, I guess from my vantage point with Wave, the future is bright. Uh, as it's public information, we've we, we recently sort of welcomed Ant uh, yeah. Financial uh, into our partnership. Uh, there's some regulatory approvals that still need to happen there, but this information is public. And so that shows appetite from you know large, sophisticated players to access the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that, to your earlier point, that um, you're going to see products and services geared towards the mass market. And I think that is a very good thing for Myanmar. That I think what technology allows us all to do is to address the mass rather than the few. And I yeah. think fintech will allow, you know, be it wave money or anyone else to come down market and really serve the average Myanmar, uh, which yeah. is which is very positive.
0: I think this is no secret. The big sort of excitement about fintech in the region is really um, servicing the underbanked and the unbanked and and allowing them access to sort of regulated lending products and and. And just using that to then build businesses and build build sort of um, in in their in their, their towns and things, which is which is great. Well,
1: I was going to say well, I I, w- I would agree with you, and I think you know Myanmar in many ways uh, has been very lucky. I, I I like to say that Myanmar has last mover advantage,
0: right? In the <laughs> sense that
1: there's no legacy tech, you know, like yeah. our bank and many other banks, there is no you know legacy. So yes. so in many ways the silver lining to be so sort of delayed is that a lot of the technology that we can now deploy is you know pretty cutting edge stuff this yeah. is pretty pretty advanced for a country like Myanmar that's a really yeah. frontier market we have we have access and the costs of technology which is pretty cutting edge you can you, you know you can deploy it in Myanmar so yeah. to your point I think it's pretty exciting to, to have that dichotomy of some pretty yeah pretty sexy technology being deployed yeah. in a very underdeveloped market yeah. and you we, you know in our business we've seen how that accelerates adoption and, yeah. and the excitement around the business
0: interesting and i can imagine you'd, you'd save an awful lot of money on decommissioning legacy systems and and all the headaches all the headaches associated uh, with, with with that
1: and it's people and mindset you know, it's really interesting. I think that one of my, you mentioned, you about know, challenges earlier, I mean, the biggest challenge on that is this isn't unique to Myanmar in every market is people. Well, it's yourself and other people, it's your own mindset. And so it's interesting, people haven't really, you know, once you get, once you, you can convince that they have to make the leap into technology, you know, yeah. you, they can leap right into what is a sort of modern architecture rather yeah. than going through yeah. what we've done in the West, which is sort of a 20, 30 year journey of, you know, creeping your way up these various solutions.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine it would. Um, if it, it would be an interesting. Um, I don't know how you do a study on it, but it would be interesting to see the, um, the 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 sort of response rates on positivity of a new system being implemented from those those early core banking systems to something now that is um, built well with the good user interface, and it's like, oh, it just does, it just does this. So it'd be uh, interesting to see how the reactions are from different the different generations. I'd like to sort of go back to a, a topic we touched on earlier um, and uh, sort of I steered away from and came, came back to. Um, and really, I'd be interested in, in your, some of your views on setting up in new, new countries, new cultures. I know we talked about some of them at the moment. I think we've both seen um, great successes and great failures of, of people moving to, to, to new markets to, to start, um, start new roles and things like that. Um, I guess my first question is, what, what do you wish you'd have known prior to the move? Um, what would have really helped you with, with, with the move to a new culture? Uh, that's a
1: great question. Um, what did I, had I, you know, I'm not sure I would have wanted to know anymore.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I think
1: uh, I, it's a learning journey, but, you know, if you think about it in, in, in maybe two analytical terms, if you know all about the negatives, you might not go, Yeah. right? And then if you, if you know about all the positives, it takes away the joy of discovering them, you know, as you go. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't have it any other way. I, I will say that my first monsoon season in 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 Myanmar was quite breathtaking. You know, yeah. I lived in Southeast Asia, I lived in Indonesia, Hong Kong, you know, there's a bit of rain in all of these markets here in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. The monsoon in in, in 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 Myanmar is like nothing I've ever seen. I mean oh. it, it rained for four months straight and, and without wow. a stop. And not an English drizzle, right? Uh, <laughs> full on, full on. Yeah. And you know, again. So you know that 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 do I wish I had known about that earlier? You know maybe not, and I didn't know yeah. about it because then you might you might think about it. Right. I think the early years were hard because the infrastructure wasn't there. I mean there wasn't reliable power, right? And and the food you could get was well, you I mean look it wasn't you know it wasn't sort of Afghanistan but you know the the food was unreliable. One week you would have one thing and then you wouldn't see it again for six months. Right.
0: So you yeah, had these yeah. sort of
1: volatile things, which aren't, aren't too much to complain about, but, uh, and the roads, and I remember the cars being extremely expensive. We we had a 20-year-old refurbished El Grand, which I think okay. the price was $85,000. <laughs> incredibly expensive because of the car licenses again. So it was yeah. really an interesting journey. This was back in 2012,
0: 13. So, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the biggest surprise uh, or, or the biggest sort of um thing that, that sort of really was exciting for you to discover when you when you moved
1: i think although i knew you know in principle what the opportunity was i i it t- probably a few year year maybe year and a half two years in i started to realize just how big an impact i could make yeah it was really quite um breathtaking and even now i'm grateful you know for most of us in larger economies you know, there's only a handful of people that make it to the top of any organization right yeah and uh, and to be able to I, re- I quickly realized that i was there at a time and sort of an inflection point i think which is obvious in, in myanmar's history but also in the financial services sector you know i was the first foreign ceo in myanmar you know full stop and certainly in the banking sector. And I wasn't even recognized as the CEO until uh, I think a year before I left because it, it, it was unacceptable that, that, you know, I was there, I was doing effectively doing the job, and, but I was advisor to the chairman and, you know, we had all these, these, these things, but, you know, and, 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 and I think when that sunk in, I, it, it was quite, a, it was pretty exciting because you realize, oh, you know, this really matters. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna change this by 20 basis points you know i can i can really mark put my footprint on put my my hand my mark my mark on this economy you know kind of forever and yeah. so in that in that respect i i that really got me energized when i realized you know all the things that were were possible
0: well what advice would you give to people moving to to a new economy or you know i i mean i think you've made some incredibly salient points on listening i think i think um there's perhaps a um a sort of a legacy view that sometimes when expats from wherever they are in the world go to wherever, wherever they go and um, they come in with an expectation that their way is the right way and that uh, they sort of try and sort of top down push that, that approach onto something and I think that that, that but they you know, think that's it's... why they're there right? yeah and they <laughs> yeah. think gosh yeah. if we don't you know if I, they don't do
1: what I say why am I here if we're going to do what they say but it, you're yeah. missing the point you know I guess you it might maybe it's just a uh, excuse me a, 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 an extension of listening but you need <laughs> to be empathetic If you think you know what that person in front of you is going through, you don't, you have no idea. And I don't care how many countries you've been into. You really need to appreciate, you you know, certainly when I arrived in 2012, 13, I I mean, you know, my my staff had been through hell, you know, for 10 years that, you know, they weren't ever thinking they would do a 50% salary cut, you know, pretty harsh political environment, you know, license removed. And I think the empathy factor, you, you need to listen, but you real—and you need to, you can't just kind of write it and remind yourself you have to do it. You really need to believe it. Yeah. You, know, you need to, 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 to really own it. Like You can't just yeah. say, oh, I need to listen, so I'll listen. They know, they can smell it on you. If you're not really doing it, they'll know you're yeah. faking it in a heartbeat. Yeah. So what I would yeah. say is when you go somewhere, and the other thing I think, one of the key things is you have to want to be there. Yeah. You need to want to be there. It's too hard, I if you're doing it for the money or the glory or the, you know, I don't know what, you need to, you need to, and you're looking at your watch saying, whoa, how much long longer, you yeah, know, I've only got another two years. And I'm like, oh, no, you're not going to make it. So another big thing is make sure that you're really passionate about what you're doing and that you really want to be there and you're engaged. And then I think that will lead to a lot of success
0: we see it across all markets with the people that never really get off the boat. (laughs) You know, they, they come in, they compare everything to home. um, And, you know, it's always, this is, in my currency, it's this much or, you know, the, the peanut butter in my place is, is nicer. And I, I I completely agree. Having now been here 12 years and taken citizenship, then I, I I know what it is to to, to commit to a place. So that's, that's really, really salient points. And I guess um, when you, when you look at sort of people that have moved into, to, to Myanmar or to, to, to any of the emerging markets you've worked in. Do you think that, that that those are the sort of key sort of common themes that mark out people who are successful versus people who are, are not successful on those moves? Or, or is there anything else you, you see?
1: You know, I, I, I no, I, well, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's that's really it. You're, you're, you know, if you think you have the answer, yeah. um, no. And you know, the longer I was in Myanmar, the more I realized I didn't know. It wasn't the other way around. Now, the longer I was there, the more, the more I was less surprised by all the you know, inf- new information I get. I, you know, even to the day I left, I knew that there was a whole other agenda going on. You know, I, I knew maybe 70% of what was happening in the bank on a good day, maybe 60%. Yeah. <laughs> the other 30, 40%, you know, I didn't know, but at least I knew I didn't know. And then yeah. you would ask people. And then as crazy as the answer might sound, this is what's happening. You know, you you have to listen and say, okay, well, why is that? One of the things I discovered over time was that many of my colleagues, my Myanmar colleagues had really understood the problem. Mm -hmm. They had a very, very good understanding of what the particular issue was. Mm -hmm. Where where they struggled sometimes was coming up with maybe the, the, the best solution. But in terms of identifying the problem, they really mm. understood that, and that was invaluable. So if you yeah. listened long and hard enough, you, you, they would take you to where the problem is, and that's more than half the battle, seeing what the problem is. And then coming up with the solution, you know, obviously that's, that's challenging as well. But, but yeah. I think the, all of these aspects are, are important, no matter what market you go into.
0: And do, do you have any sort of interesting sort of anecdotes of, of that specifically or sort of any examples of, of, of that from your, from your experience that you can share?
1: Sure. Uh, let me, we, we were in a remittance business, and even to this day, there's a lot of money that moves around Myanmar. And when I arrived, uh, you know, instinctively, you think, gosh, you know, there are these cars moving around. Why, why aren't we putting this money, lots of money, millions of dollars, you know, why is it in the back of somebody's car? You know, yeah. That just doesn't seem to, that seems to be like a massive like, security risk problem. Yeah. So the first thing you want to do is say, oh, let, you know, what about a security you know, why don't we get an armored van, an armored... Yeah. You know, and when you listen and look hard enough, you realize that, you know, at least knock on wood, until now, you know, that's not really an issue in Myanmar. And yeah. in fact, the people that travel in unmarked cars, you know, are safer than if you yeah. try to put in a, you know, a big, you know, sort of Western style security system. Yeah. and And that extended to the branches themselves. If you go into many, Burmese bank branches today. There's money rolling on the floor, <laughs> literally rolling on the floor. And you walk in on your first day, and you're like, "What? The, what are we doing? Pick <laughs> up the money, you know. Pick up the money. Let's put it somewhere." But after a little while, We're a bank that, damn it, yeah. yeah I mean, it's kind of basic, right? But yeah. when, after a little while, you realize that in fact they have a very good handle on what's going on. The, the amount of money in these things is not really worth, you know, a huge amount. There's very little theft in that yeah. in that regard. And they, you know, they have their answer is the right answer for now until they print yeah. a larger banknote in Myanmar. Yeah. The largest note yeah. is ten thousand chat, which is about seven dollars, and there's not a lot of that in circulation. So many people yeah. are paying, you know, for large, high value items with three dollar bills, right? So there's a lot yeah. of money, you know, being yeah. counted and recounted and going around. So, so, so. In terms of listening, being empathetic, and, and really learning that the local answer is the best, that was, a, at least in my I remember my first couple of years, and it was something that all, you know, all of our partners would come in and say, this, this, you need to do something about this. And I said, look, <laughs> until something happens, yeah. this is not something that needs to get fixed. Let's yeah. fix all this other stuff over here, the, the, yeah. you know, putting in technology and all the rest of it. But this, this is just not a problem. So that yeah. I, I, I was an eye-opener for me.
0: I guess it's it's um sort of shedding your frame of reference and looking at it from a from a a different perspective a local perspective and why it's that sort of case that's that's really interesting and is that is that still the case is there still a lot of money on the roads of myanmar like or have you got that sort of interbank system set up now where they can no, they can sort of transfer to From to...
1: what i gather from what i gather it's it's starting sort of now ish but it's, okay. <laughs> there's still huge amounts of money and a huge amount of people that have you know Money bricked into their walls, you know, hard currency bricked into their walls.
0: Wow. Room
1: full of money, you know. Money as a as a money money as a as a currency in Myanmar has always been a challenge. You know, they've had they've had a devaluation of the currency. I think at least three times. So yeah. money is a is a is a problem. And um, so the short answer is yeah. I mean, it, it, there there's quite a lot of money in the roads of Myanmar.
0: Yeah. So so how do just, just out of curiosity on that point, how do people pay for big ticket items? And how do um, you know, how you know, sort of cashless payments is seems to be something that's that's really sort of taking taking Southeast Asia by storm. How how do you implement a system like that into somewhere where the money is sort of physical rather than electronic in in, in many cases?
1: Well, you've asked two different questions, but, but to answer yeah, your question, sorry, about I... the, but, but no, it's okay. The physical money, I mean, look, that, that's what they do. You buy a house in Myanmar, and some guy will show up with a baker's van full of cash <laughs> and a bunch of money counting machines. And it's insane because, you know, you go to the bank, you withdraw it, so they count the money then. Then you bring it to the location where you're making the exchange, it's counted again. Then it's putting it back into another bank or making the same bank and it's counted again. <laughs> And, and this is just part of the, you know, part of the process. It's it's really quite, uh-huh. it's really, it's, it's really, you know, you get used to it after a while. And now yeah. look, small value payments, there are ATM cards, there are, you know, there are, but this is only in the last, I would say two, three years. Okay. And then in terms of implementing the technology, you know, I have to be clear, the fault, the fault really sits at the feet of many of the banks themselves. Okay. You know, the interbank solution. There's very much, there's been very much a strategy by some of the banks to have closed loop systems. They, they feel that the branch network and the, you know, the, 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 their own closed loop is, is, is their edge. And of course yeah. it's not. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so the idea is to, is to kind of try and take the whole pie. We all know from more developed markets, it's just, it's just sort of not really possible, yeah. uh, and nor is it good for the country. So many banks haven't made the effort to plug into a switch. That will yeah. allow the interbank to happen because it would very much change the dynamics of the market. But mm-hmm. slowly and sure, by surely, it, it is getting there as people sort of recognize that. And in truth, that was part of Wave's advantage. You know, the largest bank in the country, I think now, if I'm not wrong, maybe it's 700 branches. Yeah. Maybe as few as five hundred. Yeah. Um, Wave has fifty-five thousand agents. You know, the, the the scale is completely different. So if you're yeah. looking at ways of cashing in and cashing out, you yeah. know. The scale and a bank branch is not the same as an agent. I recognize that. Nevertheless, there's always going to be somebody bigger with you. You have to
0: collaborate. Yeah, yeah. And one of the and just I guess to finish up on this this topic, one of the um the the interesting sort of trends I've seen from the emerging markets is you know a lot of talk previously was about fintech coming and disrupting banking and and in many ways taking over banking. And I think whether that's going to happen or not is is a is sort of still to be to be seen but one of the things I think is really interesting about the emerging markets is that there are um a lot of the banks still have a an advantage in the market over sort of fintech players because of I guess the the trustworthy nature of their brands they've been there a long time that they are you know serving serving Populations that wouldn't necessarily look for these services if they weren't offered through their their, their bank. Um, do do you feel that the the, the banks in Myanmar have an advantage in in some cases where if they were to start offering more fintech products or offering more services like Wave, they could they could really sort of capture a market share given that given that penetration they have. So, yeah,
1: it's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure there's a there's I'm not sure I could generalize for in sure. the sense that I think some some Wave is a lot more trusted and uh, understood than it was three years ago. And every year, you know, we move, I don't know, call it this year, I think we'll move maybe six, seven billion dollars, right, in $50 chunks through Myanmar. So there's a lot of trust, right? That's a lot of transactions. That's a lot of people. We'll have upwards of maybe 15, 20 million people using WAVE at least once in the year. Yeah. It's half the population. So you, over time, you can build trust. I think when it comes to banks, I think the problem that I would say exists, and I, you know, I would include Yoma Bank in this, is that as bankers, our mindset is not really meant for that mass unbanked population. Mm. You know, it, it would... And, and again, that's one of the reasons we were successful with Wave putting it outside of Myanmar Bank. It's a very yeah. different mentality. You know, it's hot and sweaty work out there on the streets. You have alluded yeah. to MFIs. I mean, the culture in an MFI, a bank and a fintech are totally different. Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, the short answer is yes, Myanmar's banks can, uh, in principle, enter the space. Yeah. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, in practice, it's much easier said than done. I mean, yeah. really getting down and addressing that community and understanding the... Um, the business model and the, you know, the 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 revenue model for that business does take a lot. It's not about having sexy technology.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's about yeah. having
1: something that works, and it's about having something that has the right price point that serves the needs of people. So this is very, you know, it takes a very different mindset than than many of the existing, you know, players have.
0: And do do you see a, a sort of scenario in which where the you know the the, the banks in, in Myanmar start to try and do a DBS, as it were, you know, and really try and sort of digitize and really sort of go after that that sort of that that portion of the market.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, look, look. Yeah. I mean, all. I mean, look, gosh, I mean, KBZ is doing it. Yeah, uh, the largest bank in the country, and KBZ are paid, and AI is, and everybody's doing it. I think, and, and and in truth, Yoma Bank as well. I mean, we, you know, so, and and with the way I like to think of it is that, in fact, Wave, you know, they're 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 coming at the population from different ends. Banks are really coming top down, right? They've had a history in corporate banking. They've worked their way down to SMEs, and now they're looking at consumer. Wave has captured you know, you know, the mass market, but only in payments, only in over-the-counter payments. And so that, there, there we dominate the marketplace. I think we have a 90% plus market share. But it's a, it's a single product, right? So the, the complexity and the service offering of banks is far more diverse, but for a much smaller group of people. And so we're sort of coming at it from different directions. And so I think that, um, you know, we'll meet at some point. Um, banks have other, other revenue streams than, than, say, Wave, that just does payments. On the other hand, Wave, you know, is well-funded and, you know, understands the mass market arguably better than banks. And so each has its strengths and weaknesses. My own vision or um, forecast is that it's not going to be winner-take-all. There is going to be banks doing some things well and WAVE doing other things well. One important thing to remember is WAVE does not have a balance sheet. WAVE is not allowed to lend. It doesn't have a lending license, it, it you know, cannot lend. It can work with other people that have balance sheets and partner, but itself you know, won't do that. So I think uh, maybe to answer your question, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a highly fragmented market. It's not gonna be one sort of super player that's gonna do everything. People are going to do different things well, and I think there's, a, there's more than enough to go around. You asked me, I think, earlier on about some of the challenges, and I think I sort of brushed over them and talked a little bit more about some of the, the, the mm. secrets to success. And one of the challenges that it took me a long time to understand was the, in Myanmar, was the, maybe in other parts of Asia as well, is the hierarchy. You know, mm. there's it, a very clear hierarchy built around many things, but often around age. Respect for your elders, you know, is charming. But it, 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 it took me, I, I just didn't, it took me a long time to grasp that, you know, uh, you know, the older you were in Myanmar, the more respect, you were almost by definition, right. And I think that was very difficult to, to drive change because I would look at some of the younger folk and say, look, you've got the right answer. This is the way forward. But they simply, and they were, you know, in many ways, they were right. They, they simply couldn't challenge the status quo. Because it, yeah. it 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 was sort of almost defensive to to to, and so I think this this accounts for a lot of the, some of the
0: yeah.
1: inertia that we see. There's respect for age and those people, and so there's they don't want to be seen as insulting, and so yeah. you know there's not a lot of progress. So maybe that's something I would simply, you know, use an example of some of the challenges that I found.
0: And, and, and that's fascinating because I think I think that sort of. Um... The, you know, sort of, sort of real classic Asian culture sort of problem is that hierarchy. But I, I think one of the things that you know, in, in the in the West, it's very easy to just bulldoze through opposition, through opposition, and through through things, and and sort of prove you're right by brute force and then everybody kind of gets over it but uh, you know in, in asian culture there's there's an awful lot of face to be lost in 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 a, in an engagement like that and typically i'd say as a westerner you'd do that once and then they'd they'd never let you in again how, even if how if do you,
1: were you... and even if you yeah, were right even if you're right it doesn't um, matter if you were um, right that's not yeah. the
0: point yeah, yeah exactly uh, so how how do you how do you navigate something mm-hmm. like that which I know is a really tricky question, but...
1: Well, look, I, I must say, I was, I was um, as, a, as a foreigner, I was given a little bit of a free pass. Okay. You know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I insulted everyone in the first year, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. without meaning to, you know, quite regularly. And I think they yeah. just thought, well, he must be a bit of a fool, you know, we'll see how long he lasts, right? So I was yeah. given a bit of a free pass. Over time, I, I started to realize that Again coming back to another point that they understand the problem very well yeah I okay. would I, I started to realize that there was a much more nuance again they, they, they didn't really understand some of the, some of the, the, the more experienced Myanmar really understood the problem and I started to realize that actually I could learn a ton by going yeah. and speaking to them then yeah. they would again feel more engaged okay. and often they were right and once yeah. you gave them that what's the word once you acknowledged, yeah. their skill and their respect and you, you brought them in as an ally yeah. then I think they were much more open-minded to say different solutions
0: to the solution yeah right yeah
1: so I think those things would go hand in hand
0: that brings us to the final part of the podcast the quick fire question round um, so uh, we've got six questions um, and these are not necessarily meant to be business-related, you can give business-related answers if you like, but it's more just a, a, a bit a bit of fun. Um, and so, uh, are, you, are you ready? Sure, let's do it. Excellent. Um, so first question, what is the best advice you've been given? Say yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what is your favorite terrible management slogan? Um, my favorite, as everybody knows now, is when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked.
1: My favorite terrible management slogan, it's probably, it is what it is.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. It
0: means nothing, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on.
1: I think that um, stereotypes are often true. Hmm. So, you know, there's stereotypes around, you know, let's take Canadians, right? You know, all Canadians are rid of hokey, you know nice nice people and very you know there's a sort of a reputation certainly Americans like to make fun of Soomi and,
0: yeah. and the, the, you
1: know the longer I look at it it's not true for every single Canadian but as a general rule the reason there's a stereotype is that it's it's you know there are there are elements of truth to it and so I think people don't like to hear it because nobody wants to be generalized about but when yeah. you really look at it you say yeah I mean there's a reason these stereotypes exist so I think yeah. something that is 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 often true is stereotypes aren't true for the individual but as, as a group they're, they're often true
0: and I'll say you haven't apologized once through, throughout the podcast so you're, you're backing the, the, from the Canadian I, yeah <laughs> I apologize for not saying sorry. Earlier. <laughs> excellent uh, where's the first place you'll go when the travel restrictions are are released
1: to Canada see my parents yeah.
0: okay excellent and um, what's your most obscure hobby
1: uh i listen to a fair amount of rap music
0: oh, excellent any particularly favorite artists
1: i runs the gamut i i listen yeah. to <laughs> i listen to i listen to a whole range i'm not going to name okay. any names i get too
0: many uh, payments uh, Okay, and I'm a metal guy, so they'd all be lost on me anyway. Um, And um, I guess the last question, and we've had answers including Starfleet Academy and uh, time travel on this one. So uh, what part of the future are you most excited by? And you don't need to go that far in the future, but yeah, what part of the future are you most excited by?
1: You know, I I think that um, this is going to sound like a cliche answer. But I really think that when we can include more people, we talked about it all day, but when yeah. we include more people in our financial systems, allow yeah. more people to live out their dreams, get funding for their dreams, participate yeah. in our yeah. economies, right? Be yeah. they in Myanmar yeah. or anywhere else, I think sort of economic inclusion is, is more possible than it ever has been. And maybe you could say that every, every year. But I really think that you know, with technology and with people's changing and evolving mindsets, And exchange of information. I think we will have, you know, the more people we can include, you know, the better off we're all going to be.
0: Sort of brings up the the thought that perhaps we're a real, um, a real sort of pivoting time in history, where obviously COVID's come in and it's pushed us into this horrible situation we are now, and everything seems to be changing so quickly. And and maybe this financial inclusion is going to be is going to be the sort of rise of the next the next real sort of um, growth period for, for humanity. So that's, that's quite, a nice, um, quite a nice place to finish. So, um, okay, look, great. Thank you very, very much. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation with you. I really, really appreciate you putting the time aside to speak with me on this. And um, yeah, thank you very much.
1: It's my pleasure, Sam. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. Next week, we welcome Sam Hall, the APAC CEO of the Venture Builder Rainmaking. Sam joins me for a detailed chat on the critical role that venture builders play in helping large corporations unlock their potential for innovation. I look forward to seeing you next week. Stay safe and farewell.